The Book Nook on WYSO is presented by the Greene County Public Library with additional support from Clark County Public Library, Dayton Metro Library, Washington Centerville Public Library, and Wright Memorial Public Library. Good morning. Welcome to the Best of the Book Nook on WYSO. Back in 2003, I interviewed a guest who had just published a book about the mother of Wolfgang Mozart. The book is called Stitches in Air, and very little is known about Mozart's mother. And so this is not a work of nonfiction. She wrote a novel and imagined Mozart's mother. Let's listen now to Leah Norman talking about Stitches in Air. Hello, welcome to the Book Nook on WYSO. I'm Vic McCunis, and I'd like to welcome to the program Leanne Ellison Norman. She's written a book about Mozart's mother. It's called Stitches in Air. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Vic. How did you ever get the notion to write about Mozart's mother? We don't know very much about her, do we? That's right. Nobody knows very much about her. There's not very much information available. Um, I got the idea because I started out thinking I wanted to write something about Mozart, and as I began doing research, I realized that nobody needed another book about Mozart, least of all by me, mm-hmm. since I'm not either a musician or a musicologist. But I did read the collected Mozart family letters um, edited by Emily Anderson, and I noticed references to my wife or mama and a, a few letters uh, to her specifically or from her. And I sort of did a double take and thought, oh, yeah, he must have had a mother. Everyone does. Um, but nothing, you know, she's not part of the Mozart legend. So I thought I would write a biography, but then discovered there's too little information. So the next thing I decided to do was write a novel using the vast amount of information that's available about the Mozart family and um, and making up what I couldn't find. Mozart's father is a key figure in the story, and uh, so is Mozart's sister. Yes. Yes, not more is known about her than about the mother. But um, she was apparent. She was five years older than Wolfgang Mozart, the guy that we call Mozart. Um, she herself was a gifted performer and composer, but none of her compositions has survived. Uh, but we don't know a little more about her life. She lived into the 19th century, um, unlike all the other members of the family. Actually, she and and her brother Wolfgang were two of seven children born in nine years. Hmm. None of the others survived their first year. But these two lived to be adults. And this is really a story of an era because um, women had a lot of children that did not survive during this period. That's right. And the Mozart situation was a little more acute than than most, but um, about three-quarters of kids died in infancy. Let's start off with Daddy Mozart. Uh, He comes off as kind of a villain in your book. Well, my impression from reading about him, reading his letters, is that he started out as kind of a progressive, forward-thinking man. He he went from his home in Augsburg, Germany, um, to Salzburg, which was kind of like Berkeley in the 60s and 70s. It was the center of enlightened thinking in the German-speaking world. Hmm. 
And um, he seems to have been an enlightened sort of person. He was in touch with enlightenment thinkers all over Europe. Um, But gradually, and then faster and faster, as his son's great talent became evident, he really kind of deteriorated emotionally and mentally. Not mentally, but emotionally. He he became more and more possessive, uh, more and more superstitious, um, more and more demanding and controlling until um, after his wife's death in Paris, he would write letters to his son who was with her there saying things like, well, now that you've killed your mother, I suppose you'd like to kill me too, Mm. whenever Wolfgang didn't do just as he he wanted. Um, And I think he ended up an unhappy, bitter, lonely man. It's a classic story of someone uh, trying to live through their progeny. Uh, Leopold, of course, was a composer. And uh, he had great aspirations for Wolfgang, but in your story, this was at the uh, the cost and neglect of the female side of the household, uh, his wife and his daughter. Well, that's right, and and I think it was partly because his ambition led him to see that he would do well to adopt the beliefs of the people who had his career and his son's career in their hands, and it was a was a period, a strange period, because the Enlightenment thinkers were talking about the rights of man, and of course, this is going on at the same time the American colonies were protesting um, against the the what they saw as as trespasses on their liberty by the British. So, so that the rights of man was a big thing all over Europe, but a lot of the Enlightenment thinkers were at pains to point out that nature had created women not as equals, but um, as people who would serve men, essentially, and and they had a whole doctrine that women's wombs would dry up if they tried thinking or doing anything creative, which led me to believe they wouldn't have made such a fuss about the, the limited role of women had women not been pushing for some of those rights themselves. But I think Leopold figured out that his employers um, didn't want women participating in any public way, and so in order to get ahead and to advance his son, he adopted that position as well. So it was the age of enlightened misogyny. (laughs) That's right. That's pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) My guest is Leanne Ellison Norman. The book is Stitches and Air, a novel about Mozart's mother. Leanne is from Pittsburgh. We uh, also have the mother, and uh, you've really created her story, but as I was reading this, it could have been uh, a novel about Mozart's sister as well. Yes, um, in in that both of them were frustrated musicians. Um, I've presented Nannerl, his sister, um, as somebody who had much of the same kind of talent her brother had, and it's my guess that some of the things that were attributed to him as a, a baby really might well have been her work, um, possibly her father's and maybe even her mother's as well. Mm. Um, And I've made her very eager to be an opera composer, as her brother was. Um, But but she comes to believe that mishaps that afflict friends and supporters, deaths from disease and so forth, may be her fault for going against nature and, and having aspirations that put her outside of what was thought to be the proper role for women. So she she pulls herself really back in and, and um, 
that there there is a journal that that she kept that shows her living the most banal possible life. It says things like, uh, of course, journals don't always accurately reflect people, but you know, got up early, went to church. Catherine did my hair, took Bimperl the dog for a walk, mm. um, went to church, made music, made dinner, made music. <laughs> that and those were her days as a as a young adult. Mm. My guest is Leanne Ellison Norman. The book is Stitches in Air, a novel about Mozart's mother. And then there's the young Mozart. And in your book, he's portrayed as uh, sort of an innocent, uh, well, his sort fa- of a victim. Well, his father went out of his way in some ways to sort of stunt his growth. To, for, because, for example, in in the early tours where the father took both children to perform, he liked to understate their ages so that they would seem more astonishing than they already were. Mm-hmm. He sometimes by two or three years. And he really cosseted little Wolfgang, um, and I don't know whether he did this purposely or not, but he kept him young and in some ways a little incompetent, uh, focusing all of his energy, focusing all of the boy's energy on composing and um, performing and earning lots of money. For the, for the father, and, and that's money that neither Wolfgang nor Nannerl, who earned it, ever saw. So Wolfgang was cosseted and uh, Nannerl was corseted. <laughs> You're very good at these puns. <laughs> <laughs> well, it helps when you read the book. <laughs> this book, um, you, you published it uh, with Smoke and Mirrors Press. Yes. Uh, Tell us uh, what the process was like to, to write this book. You're quite a writer, and it's it's quite a lengthy book. Oh, thank you. Well, it, part of the process, of course, was the research, which was um, pretty extensive, because I had to find out about the kinds of homely things that most um, histories don't talk about, things like childbirth and birth control and how people did their hair and what, what how their clothes were made and mm-hmm. what they ate and that kind of thing. Um, so there was a lot of research. For me, the writing and the research went hand in hand. It took me about six and a half years to do the whole project, and then I published it myself because I wanted control over how it looked, mm-hmm. and um, I worked with a fine designer, Todd Sanders in Pittsburgh, who I think made it into a very beautiful book. It's lovely. Um, and I have um, had a modest marketing effort and, and have sold, I would say, four-fifths of the original run. Wow. So it's really a labor of love. It for really you. is. Yes. I, I have a daughter who edited it also. And although uh, there are two or three errors in it, there aren't very many. Well, that is very good because um, most of your major press, uh, they, they crank out stuff that's so full of typos anymore. That's it's, right. It's scary. That's right. There's not the same sort of loving care that goes into publishing books that there once was, and that was another reason that I wanted to do it myself. And I'm guessing the name of your press is, is sort of a, a hidden joke. <laughs> well, Smoke and Mirrors Press, it's a, <laughs> sort of a, now you see it, now you don't. It, uh-huh. may, it may publish another book someday, or it may not. You're listening to 91.3 WYSO, connecting our community through news, music, and storytelling on the air and online. And it's the best of the book nook, and I'll continue my conversation with Leanne Ellison Norman right after this. The best of the book nook continues on WYSO, going back to 2003, and a novel about 
Mozart's mother. My guest is Leanne Ellison Norman. I understand you also wrote a book called Hammer of Justice. Now, what is that about? Well, that's um, about a Pittsburgh woman, Molly Rush, um, a mother and grandmother, who, with the Berrigan brothers in the early, let's see, what, 80s, uh, went into a nuclear warhead plant in King of Prussia, Pennsylvania, which is uh, near Philadelphia, Mm -hmm. and banged on a nuclear warhead casing and poured blood over it. And it was the first of what was called a plowshares action. These were people who were acting on the biblical injunction to beat swords into plowshares. Mm -hmm. And what they mostly wanted to do was have an opportunity to explain the danger of first strike nuclear weapons. So I wanted to write about a woman that I didn't know very well, about why someone with six of her own children and um, innumerable grandchildren on the way would, would put her life in jeopardy uh, to make that point. Mm. So that's what, and, and it also includes some history about Pittsburgh and Pennsylvania, um, founded as a disarmed state by William Penn, who was mm. a Quaker. So um, your progressive ideals uh, were uh, part, of, part of the reason why you wrote that book. You wanted people to know this story. Yes, yes. Well, and my, my initial reaction to the, to the Plowshares event was sort of horror that nobody would understand it and that um, people who had the right point to make would go kind of unheard. And so I decided I needed to find out about it. And in fact, I think it was, it was one of many such events. And I think, in fact, it helped to um, raise the subject and probably change the public view about mm-hmm. first strike nuclear weapons to some extent. I also uh, see in your uh, bio that you graduated from Grinnell College in Grinnell, Iowa, and that you received an honorary doctorate from Grinnell. Now, that's quite an honor. What was the occasion for that? Well, it was was quite an honor. It was uh, kind of out of the blue, and it was um, an honor granted because of the piecework that I had done. And um, it was one of the very proud moments of my life. I can imagine that. You've also been involved in um, advocacy for public libraries. Yes. I believe that public libraries are one of the great democratic institutions, possibly one of the possibly the greatest, <laughs> because a, a public library has this enormous treasury of the, as Matthew Arnold said, the best that is thought and known in the world. And although people support libraries with their taxes, it's free to use to anybody. So that while you can't get a degree in a library, you can get an education. And in my judgment, that's just it's really an extraordinary institution. I know that Ohio does very well by libraries in comparison to Pennsylvania, too, and I should congratulate all Ohioans on that. Well, once upon a time, uh, there was a guy there in Pittsburgh who uh, kind of had a thing <laughs> for building libraries. That's right. I guess we have the original Carnegie Library <laughs> in Pittsburgh and and now many branches. You've also been involved in uh, development work for a, uh, is it a Baroque orchestra? Well, or? it's a Baroque chamber group, okay. Chatham Baroque, yes. So you, you have a lot of interests. Yes, I do. I think it was really painful for me as a reader to read your description of this poor woman, Anna Mozart. She was constantly pregnant and constantly <laughs> losing these babies, and it was just heartrending. Yes. There's, there's some things. Sometimes people look at the the infant mortality rate of the 16th, 17th, 18th century. This, of course, happened in the 18th century. Um, 
And they they say, well, people didn't care as much. They lost a lot of children, but they didn't get as attached to them as we do. I found evidence that that wasn't true, and, and I simply imagined myself as Anna and thought, what would it be like to be essentially pregnant for nine years and to have these babies die um, for reasons for, and, and without any way to help them. They just died. They, were, they, didn't, we didn't, they didn't have the same kind of medical facilities and didn't understand the same things that we do about nutrition and sanitation and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, so it just seemed to me a, a really terrible ordeal that so many women, including uh, the empress of the Habsburg Empire, who had 16 children mm. and and also ran what was in the Habsburg Empire. Did all those 16 children survive? No, and I don't remember how many okay. of them died, but a fair number of them. Well, obviously there was a, a glaring contrast between uh, the grinding poverty of the masses and court life, and you give us a glimpse of court life during this period and the intrigues that went on and the way that the uh, Mozart's father and son tried to insinuate themselves into various royal courts. Yes. Well, certainly at the beginning of of this story, the courts were the main employers for musicians. Toward the end of the story, and the story ends with Anna's death, um, the, some of the, the merchant class were beginning to support the arts, and so there were some options, and, and Wolfgang really didn't want to work for a court because he had seen how deferential his father had to be to ingratiate himself, and he didn't he didn't want to be um, sort of in, in bondage to a prince. And he really hoped, and I think there's plenty of historical evidence for this, he really hoped to have something like a freelance career, and he really did. He um, got commissions from royalty, but he didn't belong to the... In ultimately, as an adult, he didn't belong to the household of, mm. of any prince, um, and that's so he sort of pioneered the role of a freelance musician, and he made good money. Um, mythology, to the contrary, notwithstanding, he he had a year of poverty, which has never been explained, but he seems to have done pretty well for himself. We have a long period of history where. Men are writing the history, and women aren't really uh, much of a part of it. That's one reason why you had such scanty information on the Mozart women. In a novel like this, based on history, is one of your goals to uh, write the women back in? Yes, yes. And I think there's really an effort um, across our society to do that, find books with titles like Galileo's uh, Daughter. and I love that book. Uh, which is a good book. Now, that's not fiction. Mm-hmm. This one is. There's one that I read several years ago about Elizabeth Barrett Browning from the perspective of her maid. Oh. Um, and, and I think it's true that people are trying to, to write, the, write in some of the history that's been lost. And some of it, of course, has to be imaginative, as this book is, because there isn't enough information. So it's well, what might she plausibly have been doing? I guess you can think of things like Girl with a Pearl Earring, which is about Vermeer's model for one of his paintings. It's a comparable kind of book. And I love that book. That's a, that's a fine book, yeah. We've had the author on uh, for that one. Oh, and have you? Also, Davis Sobel's been on this program. So uh-huh. we're, we're trying to write women back into history ourselves here. Good.
this was one of the fun things about researching this book was getting these cross connections. Um, the, the Mozart family made several trips to Vienna, where the empress that I mentioned a moment ago, Maria Theresa, ruled. Um, and her daughter, her son Joseph II, who is the emperor that's seen in, in the movie Amadeus, was one of her kids. But another of her kids was Marie Antoinette, who was who married a French king and lost her head in the revolution. So when the Mozarts were in Paris, it was pre-revolutionary Paris, and the conditions that led to the revolution uh, flourished. The poverty, the filth, the anger, the kind of... Um, hoity-toity attitude of, of royalty. Um, so on both occasions, I have this, and particularly the last one when Anna's sick, um, I, I present Paris as not a very pleasant place to be. Another historical thing happening at this period, I know it was starting to kind of fade out a bit, but that was hunting for witches. Yes. That was um, particularly prevalent in the, in the German-speaking countries, and it went on from, I don't know, the medieval period, 13th, 14th, 15th centuries, really right up till into the 19th century. Um, and in fact, there are several stories about witches in my book, um, one about a witch who was executed in Salzburg just before Leopold Mozart married Anna Pertl. Mm -hmm. Or maybe, was it just, I guess it was just before the first baby was born, before Joachim, the first little boy, was born. Um, a witch was, was in fact executed um, right down the street from where they lived. And I think that had to have really been a factor in keeping women in line um, because usually the reasons that women were charged with witchcraft was that they were independent and that they did things that were outside the normal behavior of women. So that has to have just been something kind of like the blacklisting during the McCarthy period that probably mm -hmm. helped to keep some people in line, and that probably, in fact, was its function. Uh, I think the thing that comes to my mind, of course, we have the Salem witch hunts here in this right. country, but speaking of keep, keeping uh, certain individuals in their place, I think one of the most potent ways that that was done in this country was something called lynching. Yes, yes, there you go. That's right. Uh, any kind of of systematic terrorism, um, I think, is is not purposeless. It's meant to communicate something. At the end of the book, you um, share your uh, thoughts in the afterword about what um, what things you changed in history and and uh, things that that were purely fiction in the yeah. book. And I found this to be very interesting. Good. Um, yes, I. I I have I've taught journalism and and it's always made me very nervous to be messing with the truth mm -hmm. <laughs> insofar as it can be indisputable. So I felt that I owed readers um, at least a brief excursion through the story and what things I had made up and what things there were evidence for and in one case what things I had rearranged the timing of. I had Nanerl have a romance with which she really did have with the man that I name but I had it happen earlier, so it would be part of Anna's life mm -hmm. other than later, after she had died. Well, this must re be really fun for you to come out from Pittsburgh and, and be doing these events in Dayton. Well, it is fun. I haven't been in Dayton before. I've certainly passed by and seen signs to Dayton, but it's, a, as far as I can tell, a nice place to live with lots of um, good cultural stuff going on, and it's a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm glad that we were able to talk about your book because... 
I actually got a heads up from Neil Gittleman months ago that this was going to be happening, and it's it's nice when things actually work it out. It is. It really is. Well, Neil has been wonderfully helpful. He, um, I met him when he visited a friend in Pittsburgh, and he had read the book and liked it and thought that there'd be an opportunity to come here and meet some people and plug the book, and he mentioned you. When you publish a book yourself, you have to do your own marketing, um, sure. and that's a big job. What I'd really like, and, and I have an agent now looking, is for a trade press to pick it up and reissue it so that I didn't have to do all all the marketing myself. I enjoy it, but... You can just sit back and... What I want to do is write another book. Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't want to be marketing. Do you uh, have an idea? Yes, I'm, I'm working on a biography of my father, who was a forest ecologist in the Wasatch Mountains of central Utah. Oh, really? Yes, and I have... Um, journals, letters, publications, all kinds of good information. Um, so I'm having fun getting acquainted with that area. Did he know the Muries? Muries. Mm-hmm. I don't, not that I'm aware of. Okay. I bet if you look through his stuff, he mentions no. it. Oh, you mean, you mean John Muir? The Muries. Muries. Yeah. They, Tell me about him. Uh, they were involved uh, quite a bit with national parks and... Uh, with with these sorts of issues. And, and what's how do you spell the last name? M U R I E. Huh. I haven't come upon that. Well, you, but I may. If I'm, you do, don't be surprised. Okay. <laughs> so so um your dad the Wasatch, tell us about well, that. The Wasatch. Well, the Wasatch is part of the Rocky Mountain chain. Um it runs north and south in in Utah. Um from about the middle of the state down to the southern end. Um, it's high mountains where where he did a lot of his research. It's above timber, about 11,000 feet. And um, my my three sisters and, and I and mother and father spent a lot of summers living in those mountains. And he did what is called some of the classic research in range management, range meaning grasslands where animals, both wild and domestic, feed mm-hmm. and eat off all the the uh, vegetation so that enormously uh, destructive flooding happens with the loss of topsoil. And he believed that civilization and war, I mean, that war and the loss of soil are the two reasons why civilization dies. Well, those are uh, some powerful ideas. Yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying getting to know his thinking, which as a kid, you never known. He, he died quite young, so... Um, you know, it's my chance to get reacquaint- get really acquainted with him as an adult. Did he keep good records? He kept meticulous records. <laughs> good. <laughs> hey, well, um, when you get that done, let us know. Okay, but don't hold your breath. I'm slow. <laughs> okay. Well, we really appreciate your time today. Well, thank you so much, Vic. The book is Stitches and Air, a novel about Mozart's mother. Leanne Ellison Norman wrote it, published uh, on Smoke and Mirrors Press. You've been listening to the best of the book nook on WYSO, my 2003 interview with Leanne Ellison Norman, talking about her novel, Stitches in Air, Imagining Mozart's Mother. We didn't know much about Mozart's mother, so she made it up, a lot of it. We know very little about Mozart's pet bird either. Did you know Mozart had a pet bird? Well, we're going to find out more about that right after this. The Best of the Book Note continues on WYSO. We started the show off talking to Leanne Ellison Norman, recorded in 2003, a novel she wrote about Mozart's mother. Did you know that Mozart 
had a pet starling. Back in 2017, I interviewed a woman named Lyanda Lynn Haupt, who had written about Mozart's starling. And uh, she got so into the idea of Mozart having a starling that she got one of her own. Let's listen now to Lyanda Lynn Haupt talking about Mozart's starling. I do want to say up front that it is absolutely illegal to disturb the nest eggs or nestlings of any bird in North America. Um, Birds are entirely protected. There are a couple of exceptions to that rule, and one of them is the starlings because they're a non-native invasive species. Wildlife people actually encourage us to remove their nests if we see them, you know, nesting in our homes or buildings. They actually encourage us to remove them, and people can murder adult starlings however they want to without a license. But what you cannot do legally in most states, including mine, is keep one as a pet. So totally outing myself to the starling police here on your show. I don't really know if there are starling police. So far, they haven't come knocking. But um, You wrote a book about I, it. They know where you are. They know where I am now. I know there's no hiding. So anyway, it was, I you know, I was really deep into the research of the relationship between Mozart and his starling. So I read all the scientific papers I could on starlings. I put binoculars around my neck and walked all over the, the neighborhood to watch the wild starlings. I went to Vienna to see, you know, Mozart's apartment where he lived with the starling and tried to imagine it. And it just finally, I had to realize that the missing piece was actually living with a starling to really understand what that would be like. And so I learned that at a neighborhood park here in Seattle, there were were um, a couple of starling nests that were going to be removed. And I also knew from my research on the starlings in the neighborhood that the eggs had already hatched. And I could tell, even though the nests were way, way back under the eaves of the bathroom of this park, that um, I could hear that wild churring sound that baby starlings make. So I knew they were in there. But the park officials didn't care. They're just getting rid of the um, starlings. So I had an informant from the park <laughs> who told me, you know, when this was going to happen. And I just um, tell the adventure of getting to this very inaccessible nest in this park without trying to attract too much notice. But we emerged with one very sickly, wheezing, sneezy little starling that had parasites crawling all over it. I tried to get another one just so that they would sort of keep each other warm and this one looked like it was going to die at any second, but we couldn't reach another one. So that was the starling. She grew to flourish, and uh, we named her Carmen, which means song. And she's a big part of our family now. I love that story, and it's very cloak and dagger when you read in the book about the, <laughs> all the details about how Carmen was brought into the family and how, how you raised her and what you've learned about her and I can understand why starlings are invading wine country because Carmen's a wino. Oh my gosh. Uh, she is. Wine is her favorite drink. And um, if we need to entice her to do something that she doesn't want to do, like maybe she, since she's not out in the wild, her, you know, she's not getting 
her toenails say are growing longer than they would if she was out walking on natural ground all day and her bill needs trimming like a bird that was, you know, really digging through the grass and stones all day would not need its bill trimmed. So we have to do that for Starla, for Carmen. And she's totally onto it. She's so smart. She knows when we want to, you know, she, she sees the implements of torture in the little clippers that I get out and so she hides in her aviary. So I tempt her by getting out a glass of a wine glass and some wine. I pour it in the bottom and she'll look at me and she'll look at the clippers and she'll kind of go, I know what you're doing, but she, in the end, cannot resist. If I pretend, start to pretend I'm drinking the wine, she's just on my shoulder in the wine glass. (laughs) And it's not that way with anything else. She Uh doesn't even, even, um, sweet tasting liquors, like say rum or something like that. She just, it's wine. She loves wine. She prefers reds, right? She prefers reds, but a a nice bright California Chardonnay would be just fine. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, you also describe how you bathe her. And I just love this. This is so sweet. It's super sweet. So a bath is an important part of starling and, you know, health, daily health routine. So, I had hoped that I would just put a bowl in a sink and she would take a bath in it. But Carmen is so friendly. She does not just want to be with us. Um, She wants to be on us, on our head, on our shoulder, on our hand. And so with getting her to take a bath, I I have to hold the bowl for her. And once I do, she's really excited. So I put a little trickle of water um, that she can sort of stand underneath, like a kind of like a raindrop. from the kitchen sink and I hold her favorite Teresa Ware bowl underneath it and she just gets in and splashes and splashes and then she gets jumps out of my hand gets in and just in and out in and out and I'm soaked the whole kitchen practically is soaked because you would not believe how much one starling can splash and then when she's done she jumps on my shoulder and she shakes off and flies into her aviary and then she doesn't want to come out for a couple hours because she's busy preening her freshly cleaned feathers the book is Mozart's Starling. Lyanda Lynn Haupt wrote it, and she joins us on the program today. I guess we better talk a little bit about Mozart. Uh, there's actually some belief that uh, kind of an unusual piece of his music might have been inspired by his Starling. Let's talk about his Starling, what we know about that bird. Yeah, so what we do know is that in 1784, Mozart was living in Vienna. And he didn't keep good records of anything, but he did keep track of a couple of things. He kept track of all of the work that he finished. Um, and he kept track for a time in a little notebook of all of the purchases that he made. So we have this little trail from 1784. We know that in April, mid-April of that year, so if you think about it, this is the high classical period for arts and music in Vienna, kind of center of all of that. Um, he wrote down that he had just finished his concerto in G major, beautiful, number 17, beautiful, sweet concerto. And that concerto was slated for public performance in June. And as far as historians have known for you know most of the time that Mozart is being studied, that was the first time that it was eventually um, performed. Mm-hmm. In between that time, the time that it was written, completed and the time that it was performed in June, Mozart made another little notation in his his purchases notebook. He noted that he spent 
a few kreutzer to buy a starling bird. And not only that, he wrote down that it sang a line of the motif from this concerto in G that he had completed a month before. And he wrote it down two ways in his notebook. He wrote it the way that he wrote it, and he wrote it the way the starling sang it, mm-hmm. which was with a little bit of a twist. It added sort of this long pause called a fermata, and it sharped two of the Gs in the motif. And um, because Mozart is famously paranoid about other composers stealing or imitating his work, biographers, when they mention this, say it's not actually there's not much mentioned about Mozart Starling at all in the official biographies. But when it is mentioned, they say that Mozart, you know, must have been furious that uh-huh. somehow his work had gotten out there. But actually under his copied out version of the Starling song, he wrote, and forgive I I don't speak German, but he wrote Das Schön, which I'm told is translates best as that was wonderful. Wow. That's an amazing we story. We bought and took it home. I know. It's amazing. It's a wonderful story. And true. Um, we have this ephemera that, uh, or evidence of this ephemera that documents the story. And then later, when uh, the Starling died, uh, three years later, he wrote a beautiful poem, an original elegy for the Starling. <laughs> and it is beautiful. And, and he didn't go to his father's funeral, who died two months before the Starling, but then he had an elaborate ceremony for the Starling. And of course, people read other things into this. He really couldn't afford to go to his father's funeral, but he had a nice service for the Starling. He did. Yeah, his relationship with, with his father was very fraught. Leopold was kind of authoritarian and had a lot of opinions about how Mozart should manage his career. But there was a great, great deal of love and respect there as well. So Leopold died in Salzburg, which is 250 miles of bad carriage road from Vienna, where Mozart had a wife with a septic leg and two kids and all kinds of composing to do, and they were broke. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, um, I disagree with most of the biographers who say that he, you know, rebelled against his father's memorial. I just think he just couldn't go. Mm And so, yeah, two months later, and it must have been very, you know, this sorrowful time in his life, um, two months later, his starling died. And I know from living with a starling what a cheering presence they can be. And so I've heard some biographers say that this this funeral that he had for a starling was just a joke or a farce. Mm-hmm. And I think you know, Mozart was uh, had a great, absurd sense of humor. And so it, a starling formal funeral might have appealed to that. Some have said it was sort of a form of transference, you know, since he couldn't do his uh, proper memorial for his father. He had one for his bird. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that makes sense to me, too. I mean, maybe there really was something to the ritual of a funeral that gave him some solace. But living with a starling, I know beyond a doubt that one dimension of the funeral was completely serious, that he was really, really sad that his starling died. Mm-hmm. And in this little elegy that you see that he wrote, you can see that he totally understood the playful, mischievous nature of the starling and not just understood it, but it, it reflected a part of his own personality. Mm-hmm. I think it was a perfect pet for Mozart. You're listening to 91.3 WYSO, giving voice to our community, our nation. 
and our world. And my guest in the book nook today is Lyanda Lynn Haupt. Her book is Mozart's Starling. I love the way you pivot back and forth from uh, what you know and what you imagine about Mozart's Starling and your own adventures with Carmen. And I'm sure some of our listeners out there are wondering, what about the bird poop? It's an important question. Um, it's, it's one I hear. So, um, so Carmen has a big aviary in the corner, one corner of our house. And because she's there a lot of the time, um, the poop just gathers on the newspapers underneath her. But most of the time, you know, when it's safe, we have the door open so she can fly back and forth as she pleases. And what I said before is actually important here, that she doesn't just want to be, she wants to be with us and super close to us all the time when she's out of her aviary. So it's not like she's flying randomly around the house, just pooping anywhere. She's mostly just pooping on me. <laughs> so <laughs> she'll sit on my head. I get very poop in my hair. I put on a shirt that, you know, over the clothes I'm wearing for the day when she's out. So she poops on my shoulder. It goes on that shirt. Mm. Um, when friends come over, if, you know, some people, it's interesting. Some people are really afraid of birds. It's kind of an um, irrational fear. So I always ask before letting Carmen out when there are guests here. But if they're happy to have her out, then I offer one of the services we offer here at our house is a poop shirt for guests. <laughs> if they want to put something over their own clothes, they can do that. Because Carmen does like to land on the shoulder and visit with uh, new people. Uh-huh. What I find is that when people have these relationships with an individual animal, especially one that is not normally considered a pet, it is it changes the way you walk in the world. Because, I mean, this has been the case with me and Carmen. She is so, I mean, this is something we haven't talked about, but I'm sure your dove had her own way of sort of interacting with what was going on in your apartment. But mm-hmm one of Carmen's ways of interacting with us is through her vocalizing. So you talked about how not it's a surprise to people that starlings are reviled, but it's also a surprise to almost everybody that starlings are really good mimics. Mm -hmm. So part of the mist, you know, it's a mystery how Mozart starling learned its song, but it's not a mystery that it could sing it because Starlings are as good of mimics as parrots, and so um, they can imitate human voices, human music, other animals, environmental sounds. So Carmen mimics, you know, the sound of our microwave, pitch perfect, can't tell them apart from the next room, the meow of the cat, the coffee grinder, things that we say to her like, hi, Carmen, and come here. And what took us way too long to understand was that she just doesn't do this just randomly she uh, she does do it randomly sometimes and she also just mixes her mimic sounds within her crazy wild starling singing Mm -hmm. sometimes but the most significant and little known in the scientific literature aspect of it is that she anticipates vocally what's about to happen in our lives so like when i come down the stairs in the morning she says hi carmen or when i walk past her aviary if she's stuck in there she says hi carmen when the cat walks by she says meow (laughs) and when i open the door of the microwave that's when she says beep 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 
And when I open the jar for the coffee beans, that's when she imitates the coffee grinder. So she's sitting there consciously aware and anticipating what is coming next. And so it's amazing enough that this individual bird is doing this. But now when I walk into the world, I think, oh, my gosh, all of the starlings are living in this just great wild awareness and consciousness and not just the starlings, but every creature in its own way. And so it's made me just walk out with this great sense of the immense and um, secret and unknown and wonderful consciousness and intelligence of the world that we live in. I love that. That was Lyanda Lynn Haupt talking about her book, Mozart's Starling. I loved that interview with her. I love starlings. I know they are not native, they are invasive, but they are the best singers. I was listening to one this morning. They're nesting right now, and, and I heard it singing, and I just stopped and enjoyed it for a minute or two. And we've got just a little extra time left in the program. I've been trying to book an interview with Adrian McKinty. He's got a new novel that just came out this week, another thriller. It's called The Island, and it's set in Australia on a little island off the coast, and some really creepy things are going on on this island. And I, I want to read you a little excerpt from the book as the uh, innocent family encounters the bad guys, and they're being taken to the island. They got out of their cars while Ivan unhooked the two hawsers, tying the ferry to the shore. He used a stick to fend the ferry away from a bunch of old tires protecting the dock, and then he put the diesel engine into gear and they were away. If you want to see sharks, I'd go to the port side. That's the left side for you landlubbers, Ivan said as he stubbed out one cigarette and lit another, and Jacko took the tiller. They went to the port side and caught a glimpse of a tiger shark's fin, which made Owen favor everyone with a smile. How big is the island, Tom asked. Four kilometers lengthwise, Ivan said. In old money, that's about three miles wide, and it's two from top to bottom. Where are the koalas, Heather asked. Matt came over from the leeward rail. He had taken his hat off. With his long chestnut hair, Heather thought he looked like one of those men a woman in a 90s Tampax commercial would be riding her horse to meet. The koalas will be in the trees, Matt said. Look, don't drive far from the dock. There's no internet or Wi-Fi, and it's easy to get lost. Definitely stay away from the farm. That's in the middle of the island. I would like to see an Australian farm, Tom said. No, Matt said. You're not supposed to be on the island at all. Nothing to see anyway. It's just a hobby farm now. Sheep, goats, generator, well, just for us. Just for the family. So how do you live, Tom asked. The federal government had a prison just down the road here from the 1910s to the 1980s. They paid us rent, and we sort of live off the remains of that cash. They tried to run it as a tourist attraction after it closed, but Ma put a stop to all that. <laughs> she bloody dead, Ivan grumbled. Over here, another shark, Owen said, taking Tom's arm and leading him to the front of the ferry with Olivia. Hans followed them, leaving Matt alone with the two women. How many people are there on the island, Petra asked Matt after a time. Including the kids, about 25, 27, I think. Do you have a school, Heather asked. 
The older kids go to boarding school. The younger ones are homeschooled, if you know what that is. Heather smiled. I do. I was homeschooled. In Seattle? I thought that was a big city, Matt said, becoming perhaps slightly more friendly. I just moved to Seattle a few years ago. I grew up on a small island myself, Goose Island in Puget Sound. What was that like? Petra asked, genuinely curious. We moved there when I was little, after my parents got out of the army. It's sort of an artist colony, Heather said, digging the experience of telling perfect strangers some of her story. It was founded in the 1970s, but it attracted a lot of ex-servicemen, army veterans with PTSD, that kind of stuff. They have art therapy and nature, and it's real quiet. It um got a bit too small for me, so I moved to Seattle. I did exactly the opposite, Matt said. Like your folks, I moved here. I married in. I'm not one of Ma's sons. I'm a son-in-law. Uh, it's a bit um, off the beaten track, Petra suggested. That's the point, Matt said. I grew up in a flat in Melbourne. Single mum, the trams, the cars, people yelling. Does my head in the city. I came here with Tara, mom's second youngest. But she and Ma fought like cats and cats. She buggered off and I stayed. I learned bushcraft out here and I can see a hundred different birds on a morning walk. Bushcraft? Birds? You and my dad would get on famously, Heather said. Sounds like we would. That's not your dad with you, is it? Matt asked. No, Tom's my husband, Heather said, coloring. And that's uh, when they meet the, the bad people who live on the island. And it's a, a voyage of terror written by Adrian McKenty. The book just came out this week. I'm hoping to get another interview with Adrian. He is one of the hottest writers around. This book is going to be a bestseller. I guarantee it. And uh, I hope I can get another interview with him because he's still got a bit of that Northern Irish accent, even though he's been living in New York for a long time. And he used to live in Australia, so he knows a lot about it. In fact, this book was inspired by an incident that happened to him in Australia. For the best of the book nook, I'm Vic McInnes. Thanks, as always, for listening, for tuning in, and for supporting your public radio station.